Urban Meyer once said that every coach gets one undeserved opportunity and it's your job to make the most of it. So each and every day when, when I show up to the field or the office to do some work, I try and think of that, that I was given an undeserved opportunity and I try and make it deserved every day. If time equaled improvement, then we'd all have great handwriting and we'd all be great drivers because we do them a bunch every day. We take the Dwight Eisenhower quote of, leadership is the art of getting somebody to do something because they want to do it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the High School Coaches Club podcast. I'm your host, Max Price. There's a high school baseball program in Iowa that you need to know about. It's the Waverly Shell Rock Gohawks. Their head coach, Casey Clunder, joins the show today, and he's going to walk you through how he built this program from the ground up. They're not supposed to be as good as they are. And yet over the course of his time at Waverly Shell Rock, he's built them into a perennial powerhouse. He's going to walk us through how he did that. He'll explain how he aligned every single level of baseball from Little League all the way up through varsity. He'll walk you through how he gets kids off autopilot, something I had never heard before, but I'm absolutely in love with. He'll also talk about how he's built relationships through sports. And most importantly, he'll talk about how coaches need to never stop growing and learning. And I assume that's why you're here today. And it's an absolute honor for me to welcome on Coach Casey Clunder from Waverly Shell Rock High School in Iowa. All right, Casey, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Coach Price, thanks a lot for having me on. Kind of to start the podcast, if you could uh, walk us through just kind of your journey starting maybe back in high school, your playing days, and then how you wound up into coaching and ultimately where you are right now. I had a wonderful youth and high school experience. I had a great high school coach by the name of Dan Meyer. Um, who was one of the most competitive people I've ever been around. So I had a wonderful high school experience and youth youth baseball experience. My dad was my coach growing up. And and like he says on The Natural, you know, my daddy wanted me to be a baseball player. And uh, he's my dad was a lifelong Yankee fan. I'm named after Casey Stengel. Um, he always had a romanticism with baseball, and, and now so do I. I proposed on a baseball field to my wife. Our wedding pictures were taken at our field. Uh, and I tell the kids each and every year that every single person in my wedding I met through the great game of baseball, uh, from Little League to high school, semi-pro, college, and now coaching. Uh, and so I've just been fortunate to build a lot of great relationships uh, through this game. But I, I played my college baseball at Waldorf College, now Waldorf University, NAIA school in Iowa. And my second college coach was a guy by the name of Chad Gassman, who's now the AD at the school. Uh, and he gave me a great gift. Um, he came when I was a senior, he gave me a great gift and that's, he believed in me and he really helped me start my coaching career. And when, when, uh, see, we play summer baseball in Iowa. And so I started, I was an assistant coach. I was the freshman coach at Waverly Shell Rock, same school I'm at now, uh, when I was 18 years old, you know, so I, the players were 15 and I was 18. And, uh, so I, I sent out three resumes when I decided that next summer that I wanted to coach. I, Waverly Shell Rock is kind of a bigger school around a lot of smaller schools, including the one I went to high school and I went to Allison Bristol High School. It's not even a school anymore. It was so small. And so I sent out three resumes uh, when I was 18 years old, two smaller schools in Waverly Shell Rock. And, and Waverly Shell Rock uh, was the only school to call me back. And and they offered me the freshman baseball job when I was 18. Uh, head coach uh, at the time was Casey Chaplin, who still lives in town. He's a dear friend of mine. Um, he called me to offer me the job. Uh, and he loves to tell the story now, but I turned him down initially. I said, well, I'd like to hear from these other two schools and weigh my options, and and uh, he basically didn't give me a choice, and so I hopped on at Waverly Shell Rock. It was the best decision I could make. I really appreciate Coach Chaplin for 
for having me back in those days. I certainly wasn't uh, qualified for it, but uh, he remains a dear friend to this day. Uh, when he resigned, it, it was emotional. I mean, he had done so much for me in, in just my short coaching career, and he resigned. And he cited at the time that having two kids and coaching uh, was just too much to do it the right way. And he had just had another son. He has two sons. And he talked about having, I think, I think his second son was one or two at the time. And he talked about how different his family dynamic was at the time. Well, that same son just graduated from our program. Uh, and, and, uh, so he, he, in some ways helped me get the job, uh, that second son. Right. And, uh, I joke with him now that we were playing long toss in the gym a couple of years ago and he popped a sprinkler head. He threw a little too high. got a sprinkler head, flooded our gym floor and we have a brand new gym floor. So uh, in a meeting with, you know, the administration after that happened, he almost cost me the job. He gave me an opportunity to have it. 17 years later, he almost cost me the job when uh, they're questioning some of our indoor long toss methods. So, uh, no, he's a great kid. He plays football at Iowa now, really. Both the Coach Chaplin's sons played for us and, and uh, outstanding young men. So when I was a junior in college, I got the head baseball job here. I was 20 years old. I coached my first game at 21 uh, that cow. summer. Yeah, and – Hopping into the conference at that time, uh, we have, we're a small conference, but one of the oldest and most prestigious conferences in, in the state of Iowa, only seven schools, but uh, at the time, uh, three current Hall of Famers were coaching in the seven schools and really two more, uh, if the wins continue, will join that club in our conference. So for a small conference, it's very competitive. And in the interview, I can remember somebody on the committee asking me, you know, talk, uh, about competing in the conference with, you know, these legends that were coaching at the time. And it was borderline laughed at when I said, you know, that we were going to, we were going to go win the conference and it was borderline laughed at at the time. And the the next person that talked said, okay, now realistically, and then the <laughs> question, uh, and I think we've won it eight times in the last 16 years. So about half the years we've been there. Um, but the, our superintendent was so good to me at the time, a guy by the name of Jerry Viverberg. Uh, he had been the administrator at Decora, which is a rival school of ours, and came over to be our principal and then later superintendent. And at Decora High School, uh, the head coach for 55 seasons was Dennis Olenzak. He just retired two years ago. He coached 55 years. He had 1,700 wins. He ranked second nationally all-time in high school wins. And he was in our conference, and, and Jerry Viberberg was his administrator when he was at Decora. And so when I, when Jerry offered me the job and, and when I met with him, he said, you know, we didn't hire you just to be the coach this year. We can find a bunch of people that are qualified to be our coach. But what we expect out of you as a young guy is to build a program of sustained success. Uh, you know, and he used the comparison to Decora, which is almost an unrealistic comparison, you know, 55 years, 1,700 wins. But that's what he cited as, you know, kind of our goal here long term. And uh, so I was 20 years old. I remember the first time I met with my youth coaches, it was similar to the <laughs> where he goes into the barber shop and Hoosiers and, and they kind of grill him. It was similar to that. And I remember thinking like, how can I be older here? I'm 20 years old. I'm a junior in college. Uh, I'm going to meet with these passionate, these passionate parents and youth coaches. And, and so I, I went and found, I never drank coffee before, but I went and found the biggest, dorkiest, you know, coffee mug I could find and filled it up with black coffee because I thought, well, that's that's what older people do. So maybe I can try and fit in. I'm not sure I fooled anybody that day, but, um, you know, that the time flies because that was over 15 years ago. Uh, I, I had people in my corner at that time when I applied for the job. I had people in my corner that were in my corner, quite honestly, for no reason. I hadn't done anything to earn that. I had two professors in college. Jody Dozer and Larry Hill that came up to me after class and said, we heard you're applying for the head job at WSR. 
uh, we're going to make a call for you. And Urban Meyer once said uh, that every coach gets one undeserved opportunity uh, and it's your job to make the most of it. So each and every day when, when I show up to the field or the office to do some work, I, I try and think of that, that, that I was given an undeserved opportunity and I try and make it deserved every day. Um, an administrator recently gave me a, a big compliment. I took it as a big compliment. He said, hey, just so you know, our next coach probably won't be a 20-year-old kid. <laughs> and so hopefully the program's kind of pushed forward here in the last 15 years or so. Oh, there's so much good in there. Uh, having people believe in you, sticking up for you when they may not know you all that well, you believing in yourself, being super young. Like I thought I was young at 26 when I took over as a head coach. I cannot imagine for the life of me, 20 year old version of me or 21 year old version of me coaching high school kids. That's unbelievable. I wouldn't recommend it to young coaches. <laughs> Obviously we, we made it through and they stuck with me through some trying times. Um, you know, we hadn't won a ton before I got here and we certainly had a couple rocky years early on that we were trying to get things established, but the light was at the end of the tunnel. And I'm just thankful that the communities of Waverly and Shower Rock and the administration gave me time to try and set a foundation so we could sustain our success here long-term. Yeah, it reminds me of, I, I can't remember exactly who said it, and I won't say it as elegantly, uh, but there's a lot of hard work involved in life, but there's also, it's also a lot of luck. And a couple of things sound like they went your way, right? You had people who kind of stood up for you. Uh, but then you also had the advantage in Iowa where, like you mentioned, you guys play your high school seasons for baseball during the summer. And so a normal college baseball player would never have the opportunity to coach a high school baseball team during the summer. You know, you coach Legion teams or things like that. So it sounds like you got some pretty awesome breaks, but then obviously over time, you've proven that you you did deserve them after all. Yeah, I, when I first took the our, our, the coaching job when I was 18 years old and the, the players were 15, um, yeah. yeah, coming back in the summer, uh, you're right. You can coach travel ball. You can you can uh, do Legion teams or things like that. We don't have too many of those in Iowa. Obviously, you can play a little fall yeah. ball or spring ball or something. But just hopping in with the high school and a, and a mentor like Coach Chaplin, uh, I just really believe in in not now that I'm a little bit older, being a mentor. But I really believe in that. Whether you're a young umpire, a young coach, a young teacher, whatever the field is, I just I just think there's a lot of value in having a mentor or several mentors to help you along the way. And and I'll never be able to repay those people. Uh, but what I can do, hopefully, is try and pay it forward to the next generation of of uh, young baseball people. You know, if we can, you know, coaches or umpires or, or whatever it is, I just really believe in the mentor program. Uh, Casey hit it like spot on. Yeah, that's exactly what you have to do is pass it forward and keep doing that. And over the course of the long term, everybody benefits from it. Um, so obviously, you know, the school pretty well. Can you give us the rundown on it for people who know pretty much nothing about Waverly Shell Rock? Yeah, we're in a pretty rural area. Um, our closest, our our closest, I would say bigger city is, is Waterloo, about 40 minutes away from us, which is the eighth biggest city in Iowa. But really, if you look at the next five after Waterloo in terms of population, they're all in big metro areas outside of Des Moines or Omaha, Nebraska or Quad Cities, Illinois border. So we're in a very rural area. Uh, like I said, we're uh, in kind of the hub of a lot of really small schools, including my previous school, which isn't even a school anymore. Uh, we're a 3A school in a four-class system. In baseball, we're a four-class system, so we're the third biggest. And we're one of the biggest in that 3A class. So I would say we're, we're a little bit of a, a bigger suburb without uh, tied to a major city. 
we've had several Division One football players recently. Uh, Division One basketball player signing day was last week. We've had you know, so we have a, a nice tradition. We've had three men's basketball players go on and play professionally from our school since I've been at Waverly Shower Rock. Um, it's not really where we've been at uh, baseball wise with those types of Division One players, but uh, just we have a good school athletic culture. Athletics are important to the communities of Waverly and Shower Rock, and um, that really helps. You know, as we coach our kids, they grow up. They they were in competitive athletes uh, athletics early on, and so we really have a good school culture for athletics. A couple of years ago, I asked our our strength coach and our trainer. I said, of the top thirty athletes in school, how many how many do we have on the boys' side? And they each gave it the number four. So we've changed around a few a few youth program things to try and make you know baseball a little bit more attractive uh, to the to the best athletes in each class, and I think we're doing that at the younger levels now. Uh, baseball wise, in our community, had been I think when I took over, it had been about 15 years since we had won a conference championship, and we had gone to state two times in school history. The schools, uh, our school was formed in 1960, so we're actually you know celebrating our 60th year. Uh, this year as a school, and we had been, before I got here, we had been there twice. The landscape of 3A in Iowa, we have 25 kids right now in the 2021 class in Iowa in all classes, um, all divisions of baseball in Waverly. 25 have signed Division I uh, for next season, uh, and we haven't had one since the 90s. So, um, you know, we're, we're uh, still building towards that. But uh, one of our three arrivals that we usually play in the playoffs just had an eighth grader commit division one. Uh, you know, that's just not the department stores that we've shopped in, uh, you know, yeah. all here. So uh, I've, I've been here 17 years now, like I said, two, two years as a freshman coach, 15 as the head. And, and now I've lived in Waverly longer than I lived in my hometown. So it really feels like home. I've never really had a compelling reason to look elsewhere. Um, or leave for a different job. It really feels like home. I really enjoy the people and especially the kids here. Well, one of the things you said is talking about making baseball more attractive to some of the better athletes at the youth level. I think that's a huge part for baseball, especially as a sport where um, a lot of times the best athletes don't end up choosing baseball for a ton of different reasons. And what do you find to be the biggest things that you've done in your kind of the youth level to help baseball? become more attractive to better athletes? That's a great question. Um, I, I went back and looked at all of our, you know, I'm kind of a math data guy and I went back and looked, you know, when we lost the best athletes, what grade didn't they go out in? And I kind of put it all into a huge spreadsheet. Um, and really we were finding them that we were losing them pretty young. Uh, it wasn't when they were sophomores or juniors or things like that. We were losing them. The majority, there's always outliers, but a majority of them were pretty young. And so the conventional wisdom might say, well, maybe do less, work around, you know, baseball's a summer sport now, as you and I have already mentioned, and that makes it hard because that's when, you know, AAU basketball goes on. That's that's when football camps go on and, and that stuff's happening younger and younger. So conventional wisdom might say do less at the youth levels. And so we tried that uh, and and try and fit it in, try and squeeze in the cracks. You know, if there's that demonstration of, of a jar and is the jar full because you got rocks in it? Well, can you squeeze little rocks in or sand in or water? And there's that demonstration, right? So we tried to be the, the sand or the water. Let's fit in the cracks. Well, that didn't really work either because for the top athletes in each class, they want a competitive experience. They want to travel. They want um, fancy uniforms. They want to play in, in really nice facilities in the big metro areas in Iowa. So by doing less, we really, in fact, we turn them away a little bit more at times. And so uh, we decided to switch the other way about three or four years ago and get more competitive earlier, um, spend the extra money, get some fancy uniforms and some cool flat bill hats and 
And uh, so we tried to make it more attractive to them. And, and really, that's working. Our numbers have never been higher uh, at every level. You know, we have a huge uh, JV varsity right now. We have a big ninth grade team, big eighth grade team. Our numbers have never been higher. In fact, I had to go to the AD's office last week and said, we don't have enough uniforms. Um, we, we need to buy several more jerseys. And, I, you know, this is the biggest numbers we've had. So it seems like it's really working um, to keep the top athletes out, but yet provide a good experience for every athlete. We have we have three levels of youth baseball right now. We have level one, which is a rec level. We have the competitive, what we and I will call U-Triple-S-A. Uh, we have the competitive, but then we created a middle level, which I think is unique in that it's rec, uh, it's a rec league plus um, some local travel team stuff on the weekends, like Saturday only, maybe a one-day tournament with a smaller school. So you can, uh, we were finding there's a big gap between the real competitive U-Triple-S-A and the, the in-town rec program. So we kind of created a hybrid for the families that maybe they are the basketball player that wants to play AU basketball on the weekend or uh, competitive soccer on the weekend. Well, can we, can we come up with the experience to keep them involved in baseball until they really fall in love with it? Uh, and so we did that. We call that our level two and it's been good. So really we're trying to provide a good experience for, for every kid at Waverly Shell Rock and our numbers have, have grown because of it. Having those three different levels is really smart. We we started our youth program, kind of rebooted it a few years ago after we had some issues with the kind of local local programs that were going on. And we just kind of wanted to pull it under our own wing and try to kind of build our program up. And we kind of faced the same problems that you were mentioning. Like, you know, we had kids who were really competitive and, you know, baseball is what they wanted to spend all their time on. And then we had kind of the rec level kids who just wanted to play and have fun. But you're right. There's that middle group in there that they want to do other things, but they also, when they play baseball, they want to be competitive and they want to travel and they want to do tournaments. And so having that, that middle group that has that option, I think is super wise for coaches to consider. And I don't remember whose idea that was. I wish I could give them credit right now on the podcast, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we kind of, came up with uh, just a middle group there and it's, and it's been good. It's kept, it's kept some of those uh, AU basketball players out, competitive soccer players out. So like I said, our, our numbers have grown and, and uh, we look forward to even bigger numbers in the high school here in a couple of years. Yeah. I love it. It's fun when you can see that come to fruition down the road and it starts paying off when you get big, big numbers at the high school level. Um, you guys have won a lot of games, obviously. I know youth baseball is certainly going to kind of play a part in that. What do you attribute all this success that your teams have had on the field to? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. It's it's a fairly simple question, but unfortunately, it's a little bit of a complex answer here, Coach. So it usually is. Um, <laughs> no worries. Uh, it's a small question, but it's a huge question. I'll, I'll do my very right. best. Um, <laughs> without being too cliche, uh, we have great players and great families that are willing to specifically put in a lot of time. Uh, we have a winning culture at our school, uh, which which really comes out in their ability to want to be coached. Uh, young kids tend to take coaching negatively. When you walk over to an eighth grader, a freshman in the batting cage, he usually gets a little bit nervous about what the head coach is going to say. But by the time they're juniors and seniors, uh, they encourage it. They, they welcome it. They even make eye contact with you and say, hey, what do you think here? And sometimes you're not trying to give feedback every swing. You're a baseball coach. You know that too much feedback can, can be a bad thing. But yet at the same time, it's really nice when, you know, kids want to be coached. Kids want to be helped. And, uh, our kids, we, we didn't implement anything like this. They just started doing this. They, they say thank you after almost every interaction. Uh, and they shake hands with all the coaches after practice. And that's not something we ever mandated. That happened organically. So we have, we have a nice school culture and athletic culture um, to kind of facilitate some of those things. Baseball, 
uh, baseball wise, um, I know you have listeners from all sports here. This this is a little bit you know cross curricular, but we we really believe in the ten eighty ten concept, the above the line concept, the getting out of the bell curve, the outlier. Really, all these things are kind of the same thing. The good is the enemy of great mentality. We push and we fight very very hard to get out of that bell curve and and be an outlier on the top side as much as we can. And what does that what does elite look like? What does that top ten percent look like? Well, the problem is every team says they value those things. They, they value the you know hard work and dedication and teamwork and all those types of things. Well, we believe very deeply in those things. And quite frankly, we have no choice. We talked about 25 players or Division One. None of those will be from Waverly Shell Rock. And I don't we haven't had a Division One player at our school since since the 90s. And so is it? You know, there's 64 teams in our class in 3A in, in Iowa. And what are we going to do to separate ourselves from the other 63? Uh, is it going to be that we're going to have a bunch of draft guys? No. Division one players? No. 6'6 six, six runners? No. Uh, a brilliant coach? No, certainly not. Uh, a 30-year tradition to lean back on um, that all of our dads, you know, played for us. And it, they're all our youth coaches now that, you know, some some programs talk about that. Uh, we don't have that to lean into either. So we're not allowed in our program to accept a few paradigms. One of them is that is that talent doesn't equal skill and uh, experience doesn't equal expertise and practice doesn't mean perfect. Um, that we need to be really intentional with our decisions and create really elite habits to try and get better at baseball a little bit each and every day. So if other teams are going to have an open gym, that's really what off season's called in Iowa, um, and the weather's not conducive to do it outside, so it's really called open gym. But if, if everybody's going to do the same things and have the same amount of open gyms approximately, well, we need a minute-by-minute practice plan. If everybody's going to bring in and do drills with the kids in the, in the gym, we need to create individual plans. Uh, so everybody has their own specific, you know, maybe, you're, uh, maybe you spend more time on your breaking ball than the player next to you. Um, you know, we create individual plans and really times within those individual plans where you're going to work an extra 10 minutes with our pitching coach. And we create all that before practice as a coaching staff. Um, if other teams play catch, we try and do five specific throwing and receiving tasks at each step. Uh, we wear only Waverly Shellrock shirts. Our colors, our team colors are black and gold. Uh, we wear only Waverly Shellrock black and gold shirts to every single open gym. Now, these aren't even practices, but they're open gyms. I don't care if the shirt's banned, football, mock trial, something with our school colors and logo on it. Um, does it look cool? Sure, but that's not why we do it. We do it because that two-second extra decision that a kid had to look in his closet and, and say, you know what, it's a gold shirt day. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I grab that. That two-second extra intentional decision is, is what we're going to use to be successful, that if we can get them off autopilot, and that's really our way of reducing autopilot. Um, and coaches talk about it a lot of practice. Hey, it feels like we're going through the motions, and then they bring in the kids and maybe yell at them or something. Well, this is our way of avoiding that autopilot, uh, that if we, can, if we can try and set the kids up with a lot of intentional decisions before they ever get to practice or when they do get to practice, we feel like it's better for their baseball. And are we going to stretch as a group? Or are we going to do an individual FMS-based stretching, you know, functional movement screen stretching? We, we're fortunate to have a trainer that does FMS screens with all of our players. Um, here's, a, here's a unique one. When we get on the bus for road trips, we turn in our cell phone. We want the players communicating the old school way, looking across the, across the bus seat and talking to their teammates. Uh, do we take cuts in practice when we're in the batting cage or we take intentional swings with each rep? If you're a Waverly Shellrock baseball player, you won't take a swing in your entire career that doesn't have a specific objective tied to it. We never just say, hey, this is a round of seven cuts. 
Uh, now, some of those can be movement pattern. You know, we're trying to acquire skill and it can be a movement pattern thing, but some of it's a, it can be an approach thing. It can be a ball flight feedback thing. There's a lot of different options with it, but we never just let a player in the batting cage and just say, hey, take seven cuts. Uh, do we? Every team listens to the national anthem before the game, but we have a, a predetermined team stance that we let the team talk about, and we wait till that final note is played all the way through. Uh, does that help us win games? Well, I think in some ways it does. I think that intentional decision to not move until the last note correlates with a lot of things in the game of baseball. Uh, every team hustles on and off the field, uh, and every coach in the country probably talks about that. We try and sprint. Uh, hustle is not a word we use a lot in our program because it's real subjective. Does it mean don't walk or does it mean run or sprint? So we try and use the word sprint. Everybody stands with two outs in our dugout and with, with the idea that we'll extend the inning with two outs. And then as soon as that third out's made, everybody sprints onto the field immediately. So if you got stranded at second base, you know, the JV second baseman runs out and brings you your hat and glove and you're not allowed anywhere close to the dugout if you were on second base. And so we can be on the field and really maximize that one minute that we're offered each and every inning to try and improve our scales. And our between inning stuff looks a little bit different, I think, than the traditional between inning stuff. So we try and take advantage of that one minute that we're given. Do you call the I heard you talk about this with uh, with one of your coaches on the podcast? Do you call the umpire blue or do you call the umpire stir? I think there's a difference in those two things. We have a meeting before every scrimmage where we go over. We were allowed uh, several scrimmages in Iowa before we play two against other teams. And, and then you can scrim, you can inter squad as much as you want. We choose to do it two more times. So we have four scrimmages before we play and we go over the procedures in a meeting before that first scrimmage. You know, here's our follow ball procedure. Here's how we go on and off the field. Here's what the on-deck batter's responsibilities are. Here's how we throw it around the horn and we stopwatch that because you're you're only allowed one way to play this great game and it's full out. So if you're in the state championship game, you're going to snap it around the horn in four seconds because you're really excited and you're really into the game. Then you better be doing it in four seconds when it's 97 degrees out in game two of a doubleheader that we're down by six runs. Yeah, that's really the baseball is pretty unique that way and that you don't really change your philosophy too much based on the score. I think in football, you probably pass a little bit more if you're behind. Uh, if you're ahead in basketball, you try and maybe slow the tempo down, And but there's no clock in baseball. So therefore, the philosophies of offense and defense, I'm sure no doubles defense, and maybe some teams take a pitch if you're losing in the last inning offensively. But really, the, the philosophies are pretty similar, um, no matter what the score is. So each coach in the country probably says, play hard, play hard. But but uh, how do you quantify that? Well, we do those 10-80-10 demonstrations every year, and that comes from Urban Meyer's book, Above the Line. And so we, we have one player before we play. We, we, would, we would send one player for each one of these things, a, 10, a bottom 10, a middle 80, and a top 10. For example, what's a, what's a bottom 10, middle 80, and top 10 movement prep look like before practice? What's a bottom 10, middle 80, and top 10? If you strike out, what's that look like? We talk a lot in, in sports, and, and you can't listen to one professional or college coach do an interview anymore without talking about handling adversity. Well, do we really teach that skill to our 15-year-olds that may not know what that needs to look like? That He may think that you know throwing a hat down after you strike out means you're really competitive, it, when really it's just you don't have an action plan for how to deal with adversity. So we do a 10-80-10 on if you're on the mound and you give up a double in the gap, what, what's, a, what's a response? And Really, the key to the the 10-80-10 concept is the middle 80 isn't, quote, wrong. 
that it's just NOS, which means not our standard. So, you know, what's the middle 80 look like if you give up a double on the gap? I don't think it's that you stand on the mound and throw your glove. I mean, that's probably more of like a bottom 10, but maybe it's just that subtle glove snap and you don't take your time getting back on the mound and you throw a pitch before you've committed to that pitch and now it may be snowballed on you. What's a top 10 look like if you give up a double in the gap? Well, I think it's probably, you know, after after our outfielder throw it into the shortstop, he runs it into you. I think maybe at that point it's taking your hat off, going behind the mound, doing what we call a red light release, grab the rosin bag or whatever it is for you as an individual, take two deep breaths, refocus, get back on the mound and, and get back in attack mode. Uh, so again, the middle 80 wasn't necessarily quote unquote wrong, but certainly the top 10 was a better option. So you need to have an action plan on how you deal with adversity. And that can be specific to every player. Maybe it's after you strike out, you don't take your batting gloves off until you're ready to uh, be a productive member of this team again. Go in the corner and, and put your batting gloves on for a, a minute and then take them off after 30 seconds and get in there and cheer on your next teammate. Uh, we trust our teammates. And and if you strike out, which happens in the in the game of baseball, uh, have a seat in the dugout, take a few seconds, and then get back up on the rail and and cheer on cheer on the next guy. Have confidence in him. This team is not going to rely our offense on one player. So you didn't get it done. That's fine. We got a nine wolves at a buffalo mentality um, that we're all going to pick at the buffalo. And you uh, you battled. Uh, it didn't get it didn't get done for us. The next person maybe can cheer them on. And so I, that, that handling adversity is a big thing because we kind of forget this as coaches. Um, you know, you're up, you're up, you give up a home run on the mound and a three run home run on the mound. And not only are you having adversity, but now you're having adversity in public. I, I play golf once in a while. I'm not very good. And when I shank a ball into the backyard of somebody's house, uh, that's not in public. My three friends will razz me, but that's not in public. Uh, I don't, I didn't have to do that in front of 500 community members. And so it's a hard thing for a 16 year old kid. Um, you know, we, we say all the time handle, you know, I heard, uh, I think it was Coach Wolf, maybe on on your podcast, who was a great uh, had some great content on there. I think he he talked about not arguing with umpires, uh, and I have the exact same philosophy. We don't we don't need to have every call to win. And I think you're, you know, we we would tell our players to handle adversity the right way. Well, I think you undermine that to a certain extent if you run out and chase down the field umpire, you know, three times a game. And so we'll go out there from time to time and talk about rule clarifications and things like that. But to argue every bang, bang play at first base, I think, is counterproductive to the big picture, even if it, even if it helps in a small window. I think, you know, we, we want to talk about handling adversity. Well, I think we need to set that example. We don't we try and set an example of we don't necessarily need every call to win. Uh, talking about autopilot and getting off autopilot in that middle 80 of that bell curve. You know, if I asked you, Coach Price, what? how was your drive to, to work today? You know, could you tell me specific things on that drive to work? Well, probably not. You've driven it a hundred times and or a thousand times, and you probably didn't notice anything different. Um, and that's autopilot. And we try and use that as an example. And did you improve your driving skills today? No, you probably necessarily weren't trying to improve your driving skills, but if time equaled improvement, then we'd all have great handwriting and we'd all be great drivers because we do them a bunch every day. Uh, I have terrible handwriting. So, uh, you know, we're not making intentional, we're not getting outside the comfort zone and into the growth zone on handwriting. And I'm not saying we're trying to, but it just goes to prove that time doesn't equal um, growth necessarily or improvement or development. And then uh, going back to baseball, the time training economy, where do our outs come from? We chart every out that we have and try and match practice reps to, to what happened in the game. 
So a, a couple that are that are I think unique that maybe baseball coaches wouldn't think about. And this is really again cross curricular. You could do this in other sports too. But fourteen percent of our outs come on infield fly balls, and that can be a tough play for an infielder heading down to the Bermuda Triangle, backpedaling. Uh, that can be a tough play. Well, 14% of it, do we practice at 14% of our defensive reps? Well, we do now. We don't have the luxury of, of, uh, of not doing that. We need to be really efficient with our time. And conversely, you know, 0.38 of our outs historically have come from rundowns. There's, I think there's a lot of coaches across the country that practice rundowns a lot for not, yeah, not a lot of return on that uh, investment. So the same thing with relays. It was 0.3 on relays and we considered that an outfielder to an infielder to a base to tag somebody out and 0.63 not even one percent 0.63 percent are outfield assists so even if you combine relays and outfield assists we've historically got one percent of our outs from that so we don't spend a lot of time on that we install it we talk about our very very simple system and then when when do we practice it can you put it into your catch play routine with your infielders can you do some relay footwork uh, you also get 10 minutes before each and every game to have the field. Can you work on it then? We don't spend a lot of practice, a lot of time economy on that because we need to get other things done. Uh, the last two state championship, the state champions in our class in Iowa, had their, when their top two pitchers were on the mound, 61 and 65% of their strike their outs were recorded via the strikeout. Ours were 41 and 28 in those years. Uh, the year we won state, we won state championship in 2015, uh, we recorded 30, 36% of our outs via the strikeout that year. So I'm sure that might be the lowest number of any state champion maybe in a decade. I haven't looked that far back. but uh, So we know we're going to have to be really good about the plays that happen in games. We need to practice those a lot. We don't have a lot of time to waste on rundowns if we're only not even going to get a half a percent out of that. At state, in the state tournament, we made the state tournament in 2018, and we faced a Division One pitcher who later became a freshman All-American uh, the next year in Division One baseball. And uh, I'm sure they recorded a lot of strikeouts that year. A high percentage of their outs were probably via the strikeout. Uh, one of our guys texted me uh, the next spring and said, hey, this, uh, this pitcher's pitching on ESPN, and he lost to Alabama. So after the game in one of our text groups, a couple of former players said, his last two losses are to Waverly Shellrock and Alabama on ESPN2. And so if we're going to have a chance to compete with teams like that, that, you know, he was throwing 93 miles an hour that day. Well, again, that's not the department stores that we shop in. So if we're going to have a chance in that game, we're going to have to do all these little things correctly over and over and create the habits necessary that if we're fortunate enough to play in that state tournament, that we're ready to go against somebody like that. So we need to be the best at the stuff that nobody cares about. Uh, we need to dominate the details and be brilliant at the basics or kind of some slogans that we use with that. Uh, and we hear all the time that, Schools don't have, you know, the money to do certain things or they can't afford, you know, pitching rap soda or hitting rap sodas or things like that, uh, or they don't have uh, Division One players. Or I, I think you could run our system at any size school you wanted, even if it was uh, Norman Dale's Hoosiers team with, with five kids. I think you could run our system. We don't do anything special baseball-wise. We just try and be really efficient with what we do do. And some people would say, well, it's not that big a deal if a kid wears a red shirt to practice when our when our, our open gym, excuse me, uh, when our colors are black and gold. Well, uh, we, we kind of use the analogy of your field. Uh, if there's a, you know, if there's a molehill on your field and left center, it's probably not that big a deal. You want to get it fixed, but maybe it's not that big a deal. Well, all of a sudden you put 40 molehills out there and you probably can't even play a game. And so uh, we, we say, OK, it may not be that big a deal, but all of a sudden, you know, 
30, 40 things that aren't quote that big a deal become a big deal, you know, 40 molehills on your field and you'd probably have to move that game that night. And so when people say it's not that big a deal, if you have a little bit of red on your shorts, when you come to open gym, that's kind of the analogy we use in the movie, coach Carter, uh, he says, we can't teach you basketball until your conditionings at a level that allows me to do that. Well, the same thing with the detail oriented practices that we try and implement. We can't really teach you baseball until your, your detail as a high school kid is at a level that allows us to do that because baseball is very specific and has a lot of details as do all sports, but uh, we, we need to have that detail down and that mentality of constant improvement, constant growth to be down before we can ever teach you anything about baseball. So if you're sloppy in, in those details, if you have a little bit of red on your shorts, when you come to an open gym, now we have practice uniforms, so it's a little bit easier. They have to remember which day is which color, but outside we have practice uniforms, but in the gym, we let them wear shorts. And uh, if you have, a, for example, you have a little bit of red in your shorts, that may not be a big deal in, in you know that moment, but you know, if you're sloppy and things like that, are you also the pitcher that's sloppy about mixing up your looks and preventing the run game? If you're uh, sloppy on some of those details, are you sloppy on when you're on deck and the guy's coming home? Are you telling him which way to slide? What's well, a little detail that make an, that can make a big difference in a baseball game, as you know? Uh, an autopilot, how about this one? If you're sloppy at, at details that we try and implement, are you also sloppy at this detail? Do you have an autopilot response when one of your teammates says, man, it's super hot, hot out here today? Yeah, I can't wait to go home and, and take a shower or, or go in the air conditioning. That's an autopilot response. An intentional response would be, you know, it's hot for both teams out here. And, and there'll be a day in December when there's snow on the ground that we'll be begging to play baseball. I mean, that's a little bit, you, know, you take one and a half seconds to make a better decision that can change the, uh, you know, the chemistry of the dugout for that particular day. And so then, then the secret sauce the final piece I have here, the, the secret sauce of that is we work extremely hard to get the players to buy into that, the coaches and players to get them to buy into that. So they see the reasons, they see the value, and they make the connection between those details and getting off autopilot and winning. They need to make that connection. So we make it sound like we bark at them all the time for these details. We really don't. We don't bark at them left and right. We take the Dwight Eisenhower quote of, Leadership is the art of getting somebody to do something because they want to do it. So we try really hard to get by in and show the value, uh, give historical stories about players we've had that have have cleaned up details in the classroom or cleaned up details in practice and then got the results in the game or the teams that did that, that made the state tournament. Uh, so we try really hard to get that type of buy-in for all that. I think we could just stop the podcast right now and head on home. <laughs> yeah, nobody's <laughs> going to have to listen to this one on like 1.5 feed or anything. No, that's true. No, that's money. I, everything you said there is so gold. I, I put like a question out on Twitter a long time ago asking, you know, for recommendations for the show. Um, Ryan Burkhardt, who coaches at Altarelli over there in Iowa, he immediately texted me and he said, you got to get Casey on because he's a phenomenal program builder. And I think just sitting here and listening to everything you just said, there's so much in there that can help so many coaches of so many sports, obviously baseball, but any sport and it, to, to kind of build programs. I had wrote, written it down like right when you first said it, get off autopilot. And I was just thinking as a as a teacher and a coach, you know, who's around teenagers all of my life, basically, right? Getting kids to get off autopilot is, I don't want to say hard, but it's, it's so easy for them to go into autopilot. And it's easy for any human being, really. Uh, and so making that kind of a focus and priority of your program, I, I've never thought of it that way, but it makes so much sense. So much sense. You know, first of all, uh, Coach Burkhardt is a fantastic guy and a fantastic coach. So I really appreciate him 
you know, nominating me or recommending me. Uh, he runs a great program at Alta Aurelia High School. Um, I, I think it's hard for us as coaches to admit how much time we waste. You know, if you're going to allow players, you know, players are busy. They got a lot of sports going on and, and academics and, and high school kids are busy now more than they ever have been. So if you're going to bring them in for 90 minutes, I think you owe it to them to uh, have the most efficient 90 minutes. And that, and to do that, they can't be on autopilot. I think it's a waste of their time to come in the batting cage, you know, in the in the middle of winter and throw to each other and just say, hey, let's get 30 great cuts in. And then they're sweating their tails off and they come to you and, and I say, hey, what'd you work on over there at the batting cage? And they don't know. I, I think that's a waste of their time. So we try and put, you know, a specific objective and, and really we try and make it one objective that we don't have dual focus drills too often. Obviously, later in the season, you can start to do some of that stuff. But I think anything you can tie to, to that stuff to get them off autopilot, that when you're throwing, are, are you aiming at a person? Well, if I'm throwing to you, Coach Price, um, you're probably a, you know, at least 5'8", you know, something like, well, that's a pretty big target for me to throw 30 feet away. Um, I, don't, I don't know how much focus that takes for a high school baseball player. Now, if I say there's a Nike logo on your shoulder and I'm going to hit that a bunch, uh, now that's a specific focus that helps you get off autopilot. And so I think we we end up as baseball coaches, we get kind of a bad rap for having a boring sport. I think we sometimes make it more boring than it would need to be because we allow so much of that autopilot. The 90 minutes part is, is so true too. In in baseball, some coaches of other sports kind of think I'm crazy, but I'll explain to them, you know, in order for us to be able to even practice, we've got to spend like it's about a 30 to 40 minute warm up kind of a session. Right. By the time our arms are warm, by the times our legs are ready to go, like we're 40 minutes into practice. And so I think you have to be as a baseball coach, especially, but as any coach, really, really intentional with how you use the rest of your time after you've done that. And then I think something you mentioned earlier is really gold for baseball coaches. And I think it transfers to any other sport as well. Can you make your warm up include drills and other things that you want to get done during practice that day? So you mentioned, you know, you know, relays, possibly your outfield assists and building all of that stuff into maybe a catch routine as part of your warm-up. Now, all of a sudden, you've knocked that out in the middle of getting ready for what we're going to do later in practice, and you don't have to then spend additional practice time on it. So being intentional as a coach and kind of ourselves getting off autopilot, you know, it's really easy to just write up a plan and say, all right, we're going to play catch, and then we'll be, you know, after that, we'll, you know, run some, you know, first and third plays, then we'll hit on the field and we'll call it a day. You know, and you spend five minutes on the plan and okay, that's it. Uh, being really intentional is, is so important as a coach. And then transferring that and having your players get off autopilot and your players be intentional, it's awesome. I couldn't agree more. I think one piggyback off your point there is we try and, you know, talk about practice planning. Uh, I'm not a hitting guru or a pitching guru, I might be a practice plan guru. And we, we uh, I don't know much about baseball compared to anybody else, but if we can try and organize it maybe a little bit better, that might help us in the long run. But I, we, we script all the personnel and we post in the dugout before practice. Hey, this group, these kids are going here. And, and on Team D, this is our first rotation of team defensive stuff. This is our second rotation because I don't want to spend five minutes in the middle of practice saying, okay, you, you, and you go to second base. You, you, and you go to third base. I, I want all that done ahead of time. So I think football coaches are really good at that. They usually script out the team D play number two is, you know, this is what the defensive coordinator is going to call. This is what the offensive coordinator is going to call. This is the personnel package. This is the, you know, I think football coaches are much better than that. And I have a few friends that are good football coaches and they've helped me with that, that when we do a team defensive segment, we script it all out. 
you know, this is going to be play number six is going to be a good bunt in the hurry zone down third baseline with this defense called and this offense called. And, and so we can kind of script out those things to maximize our time. When you script it out, do you have players, uh, is the expectation, I guess I should say on players when they show up to look at the practice plan and know where they're supposed to be each part of the script, or are you having assistant coaches, you know, players kind of know the general idea of practice. And then you're having your coaching staff kind of at the start of each drill or, or script or wherever they're organizing players where they need to go. It's a great question. We, we post it in the dugout. So the players are responsible for looking in the dugout to see if we're going to do a team D period, period one, I'm at first base period two, I'm a base runner and period three, I go to left field. Um, and so they can, we, we usually don't do more than like three periods a day at it. We, we try and be very intentional with how we name drills. We don't have a full scripted practice usually, unless it's a scrimmage day, meaning, um, this is what we're doing for two hours and we have a cool name for it. And that's what we're doing. We script by period, more like a football coach would. And so if we have a team D period, individual D period, uh, you know, just name them, but a, a go Hawk BP, we call it period. And not every period has to last the same length, but if we if we name them, then at least they know the setups to those. They know on GoHawk BP, we're not going to put a square screen behind second base. We're actually going to put them in foul territory because we are going to play the outfield live during that particular BP. And so I can say they see on the practice plan, GoHawk BP is coming up. Well, the previous drill, they can start to set it up. That's really smart. Yeah, we've done, we usually post our plane in the dugout as well. They know to go and look at it when they arrive and they know where it is and they, they kind of know the expectation. But I've had other coaches that I talked to who they don't post the plan at all and they, they don't they don't like it and they don't think it works for them. And so I think, you know, obviously finding what works for you as a coach is awesome. But I'm with you. I, I like posting it in the dugout. And I'm with you. I don't send it out during the day. Now, if we will for a scrimmage, we will send out videos of what we're going to do that night. You know, if we find, you know, Jerry Weinstein's got great stuff on Twitter. So we've we've taken like a Twitter converter. And, you know, all the Twitter videos that we find of a certain drill or a certain major league player doing that, you know, a pump fake from the first and third play where the catcher comes out and pump fakes. Well, there's a great video of Yadier Molina running that play a few years ago. So if we can take that video off Twitter and convert it into an MP4 and put it in our handbooks and our stuff and then send that, you know, that link, hey, we're going to work on this play tonight. Here's Yadier Molina doing it. We, we got into that. And some of the pandemic stuff helped with that. That our first practices last year, our first 10 practices had to be on Zoom last year. So uh, we really got into converting some of that stuff to MP4 and going over all of our plays. And if we have a, a certain pick play and we found it on, on Twitter or on YouTube, we post it right in there and they can at least give them an idea of what we're going to work on that night in practice. I like it. Let's dive into that real quick. Um, you guys were like, we had Michael Barta on and so he kind of, talked about it as well but in Iowa you play baseball during the summer and so you know most high school programs we all got shut down back in March or April and we were all kind of done for the year kind of across the country you guys ended up playing your your season obviously there's some big adjustments and everything like that but you played your seasons uh, in the summer you got them done for a while there you were the only probably the only sport at all uh, organized in the country that was still going on what was that like yeah, it was interesting. I, I usually had like a percentage in my mind of the chances that we were going to play. And at one point, I think I was down in my mind to 2%. Yeah. And then our, our governor came out, I'll never forget it, probably as long as I live or coach, that on that Wednesday morning, she came out and said, 
hey, I think this can happen. I was down to about 2% in my head, and hey, I think this can happen. And later the state association came out and said, we're on board, let's do it. We just got to figure it out, uh, what it looks like. And so the state association at that level did a great job of trying to answer you know, they announced it on a Wednesday afternoon. I can only imagine the amount of emails they got about, well, what about if a fan picks up a foul ball? What if, I mean, there's just so many hypotheticals at that time. So we did, the state actually came out with, I think it was three hour long webinars of everything that could happen in a baseball game. And I can't believe the time they would have had to spend to put those things together. But specifically at the school district level, we have an outstanding trainer. He came to us from the Denver Broncos and He's such a hardworking guy and such a great guy. He stayed up all night. Uh, you know, we we're trying to come up with all the protocols at our district level of, okay, what can we do at this practice? And we went out and looked at all of our equipment. And he said, yeah, you need to wash this between drills. And, and we had all the different cleaning supplies that you would need for every different type of surface. And so our trainer, Destry Spearslog is his name, and he went above and beyond. And uh, my mentor, we already mentioned him, Casey Chaplin, uh, told me one time, he said, you don't have to know everything, but you have to be one phone call away from somebody who does. So immediately when that Wednesday hit and we were going to play, we formed a task force of an ER doctor has a son on our team. Uh, uh, one of the most veteran nurses at the hospital had a son on our team and our, our athletic trainer. So the four of us, we kind of formed a task force and said, Hey, what, what is everybody comfortable with? Is this, and we kind of hit that middle ground between what's realistic and, and what are we comfortable allowing the kids to do. So we talked about bus protocols and uh, in the dugout, outside the dugout. We have a big dugout, but we usually carry a lot of players on varsity. We cut that down. I think there was a game when I traveled an hour and 45 minutes this year to play, and we, I think, took 12 eligible players <laughs> because the, the bus, they really reduced the number that could be on the bus. And so we played a doubleheader with 12 players that day just to – get them all on one bus. You had to sit crisscross on the bus. And there was something, we had a few players opt out with, with some pre-existing things. And, and that was a good thing for them, I think. And, but for the most part, it was a great experience uh, for everybody that was involved. Very few teams in Iowa uh, had the virus and then had it spread uh, throughout their baseball team that a lot of the instances it was, it, you know, the virus came onto their team from outside uh, the diamond and so it really was a overall, I would say it was a big win for Iowa high school baseball to be able to play baseball wise, wins and losses wise. We, we knew a couple of things. We talked as a coaching staff. We knew a couple of things heading into the pandemic. Cause like you, we were shut down from March 13th to June 1st, I think it was. And so I think some kids played catch, tried to do some stuff on their own. We were allowed zoom meetings then in May to get ready for June 1st, but obviously that's nothing physical. So wins and losses wise, we knew that the teams with the best genetics that had their point guards and their quarterback, yeah. you know, we knew that they were going to be a, a leg ahead uh, because just, you know, it's, it's more natural to those kids. And then we knew the ones that had private hitting facilities that didn't have the rules of a public facility. Uh, you know, if you have a X ball player in town that has a batting cage, and, you know, those places are all over the country and certainly in the metro areas in Iowa, uh, they're more prevalent, but we knew the with the people with private hitting facilities that had places for the kids to go, well, they would come out ahead too. And I think that's how it played out in Iowa. Um, there's two ways to be a great player. You can be a great athlete or have great skill. And those two things 
you know, kind of help those teams that had those things. But we felt very fortunate to play. It was a wonderful experience. I just kept thinking as the pandemic was going on, we got six seniors. You can't redshirt in high school. And so just to be able to play their senior, we had we had a couple seniors this year. We're just a big enough school. We had a couple seniors this year that hadn't played varsity yet. And they ended up being starters for us in the summer. Well, I'm really happy we got to play for those types of kids that it, it worked hard, waited their time. Sometimes in good programs, good players have to wait behind other good players. And we had a few of those kids this year. I'm really happy for, for those kind of kids that were able to finish writing their story of baseball, their high school baseball experience on the field and, and get to play. Yeah, you said it. For us, we had a few players who had, you know, they'd been behind really good players for three years. And so they put in a lot of time and a lot of work and then they just never got to finish that chapter of their story. And you just feel really bad for them. And I'm really hopeful that through, I think by you guys having that season this summer, it, it showed the rest of the country that there's a way to do this and there's a way to still have high school sports. And so I'm really hopeful that in Oregon, we can kind of follow that. Um, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic <laughs> at this point, sure. but I, there's there's proof now all over the country that it's possible and it can happen. But it started with you guys, and I think you know just uh, I guess thank you. So I'm trying to say is that you kind of gave hope to the rest of the country that there's a way to do this and do it in a way where people aren't getting hurt. They're not they're not necessarily spreading the virus, but they're having the opportunity to to close out their careers and do it the right way. And I think high school sports are really important in that, in that, in that regard. I agree a hundred percent. I know there was some surveys sent out and obviously like with anything with the virus, there was passionate people on both sides, but I would guess like the consensus in Iowa after the state tournament and after it happened, but a couple of teams that weren't allowed to play in the playoffs because they had contracted it, you know, I don't remember what the exact number of percentages were that they couldn't play, but a few teams had contracted. But I think overall the consensus in Iowa was that it was a win, that, that uh, you know, it was safe. It was still being very responsible with the virus, but yet providing an experience for the kids to play. Yeah, I think it's really important. And it, I think it helped the whole country. Like I said, I think it's, it was an opportunity for everybody to see that, hey, we can, we can do this. We can make this thing happen. Um, you talked about a lot of things already, uh, getting off autopilot, um, having individual plans for your players, the 10 10 rule. But I also wanted to ask you just more specifically regarding culture. Are there any kind of mantras or sayings or pillars or um, I don't know anything that I'm missing out on that you guys have done at, at Waverly Shell Rock that you think really contributes to building that culture that you've created over the last you know 16 years or so? Our core values are energy, uh, selflessness and excellence. And I think that kind of encompasses, you know, just about everything that can happen in a baseball game. But also uh, it, it was development was too big of a word to have it as a core value. So actually in the graphics that we've created and stuff, it's actually overarching even above the three core values that uh, development is the reason we're here to help these kids become better young men. And uh, can we help them in the classroom? Uh, can we help them socially? You know, all those types of things. I think, are, and that's that's why that word development. We're not just talking about on the baseball diamond, and so that's really an overarching theme. Overarching theme, even above our core values. Uh, going to some other mantras we use: OKGs, our kind of guys. Yeah. Um, uh, attention to details. You and I have already mentioned. Be where your feet are. I heard that on one of your other podcasts. We use that all the time. Love that. Especially love that when we're hitting playoff time that it's so easy to look forward. We're in our last two non-conference games before the postseason starts on Friday. Uh, hold on, be where your feet are. We, we can only take care of today. Today we play a non-conference game to help us prepare for a Friday's game. 
okay, now we're on a Thursday practice before a Friday game. Be where your feet are. We need two and a half great hours of, of work here before tomorrow will come at the same time, whether we sit and stare at the clock or not. So be where your feet are. And then one big one that we use during games, uh, South Carolina, when they won back-to-back uh, -back College World Series, and I think it was 2010, 2011, so we stole it from them, was win anyway. Uh, you're down by three runs, win anyway. It's 97 degrees out here, win anyway. You're facing a 93-mile-an-hour pitcher in the first round of the state tournament, win anyway. Um, is, is kind of one of our things that we use during games that's posted in our dugout. Each and every year, we read a book as to the, uh, the seniors, uh, and I read a book together. Uh, last year was The Obstacle is the Way. Uh, a couple years ago was Legacy. Uh, Above the Line with Urban Meyer was actually our first one, and uh, we really like that. And I, I'll be honest with you, I know it's cliche. Uh, sometimes I get mad at other coaches for saying this. Really only – not even half, not even 50% of our conversation revolves around baseball. Again, if we can, if we can take care of the other things, I think a byproduct of that will be, uh, you know, they'll compete better on the baseball diamond, but uh, really, you know, senior year is a, an interesting time in Iowa high school baseball because we finish up, you know, if we're fortunate enough to play in the state tournament, we play into early August. Well then boom, they flip around and they're right into uh, going to college. And we're lucky. I think it's 47% of our graduating seniors going to play college baseball. And so, boom, you're right into college fall ball. Well, there's not really an off season there to develop before that. And there's not, and that happens really fast. That transition is hard on kids. It was hard on me all those years ago. And so what can we do to seniors in our program? What can we do for seniors in our program uh, to help them get ready for the next challenges in life? Uh, and so we read books like that. Um, this year, uh, I think it's going to be Atomic Habits. You know, all books that a lot of coaches have read and very familiar with, but we actually read them with our players. And then they do an assignment every week. And we don't necessarily have them turn in the assignment. That's not really the point. I don't want it to feel like a class. I want it to feel like a discussion. So if a player comes in and, and we do it Wednesday before school, and if a player comes in and he doesn't have his sheet filled out, we're not putting him on blast for that. Um, you know, you're going to get out of this what you put into it. And by having that hopefully happen organically, the players buy in a little bit better that I'm not checking papers. I'm not grading papers. We got a B minus on today's assignment. No, that's not really what we're after here. Um, we're, we're after just trying to use one more avenue to help you become a better person and in turn, then a better baseball player. Um, and then we hold some baseball camps every year. We're lucky to have some friends of mine in pro ball that come and run camps for us. And we don't make any money off those camps. I think that's important to say. I'm not saying that people that do that are, are malicious in that, but we don't use player development uh, to make money. We'll sell cookies or cookie dough or wash cars or something like that if we need a few extra bucks. But we, uh, if we bring in a uh, – we have a couple of pro hitting coaches that come in and use our batting cage with the kids, um, and we charge them, and, and they basically want 100% of what we charge – uh, because the public facility. So we just rent it out as the varsity baseball team. And then these guys can come in and, and teach our guys some hitting because we have really restrictive rules about what we can do in the off season. So we do a few of those things and, and we charge the kids the bare minimum uh, so that we can maximize how many players can, can go in there because we fight socioeconomic status. I mean, I think everybody does that. We don't want sports, unfortunately, and baseball specifically can be a sport where it's becoming more of a country club sport where USSA is expensive. And so we try very hard not to do that. We don't buy unnecessary clothes. We buy our, our two hats home and away. 
and, but we don't even, you don't have to buy a jersey anymore. We've kind of gotten rid of that. We try very hard to fight the socioeconomic status thing as much as possible. Um, yeah, and so that senior book can help us. It kind of leads us into the season and hopefully help our seniors become better leaders. Well, you, you kind of have hinted at it already, but I really want to make sure I ask you this question because I think there's some really good stuff that can come from it. Uh, you've obviously spent a huge part of your life coaching high school sports. Uh, you've been doing it since age, well, since age 18, really. Why are they so important in society and why, why do you think our kids should play sports? I still believe that being part of a team is one of the neatest experiences that you can have, uh, not only as a young person, but anybody. I mean, Coach Price, why do we still play rec sports as older guys or why do we play golf, you know, on, on the weekends? It's certainly not just to win or certainly not to be cheered on by, you know, the three guys in my foursome of golf certainly don't cheer if I hit one in the fairway or no, <laughs> if I'm playing uh, adult, co-ed adult softball. Uh, I don't think my wife's going crazy in the stands if I hit a seeing eye single over the shortstop's head, which is about as far as I can hit it anymore. But uh, I don't. I, we don't play sports for recognition or to be in the paper. I don't think they post those scores or or stats in the paper very often. So, what I do think, still to this day, the thing that the reason we would play sports like that is the camaraderie of it, to build relationships and camaraderie with other people. And and I've already mentioned to you that that everybody in my wedding I met through the great game of baseball at some level, from little league all the way up to coaching and semi-pro and whatever else. And so I think those relationships, you know, can be valued. And I, I think that's, you know, one of the biggest changes I've made since I was the 20 year old head coach that I value that player that maybe not be a starter for us, that uh, just wants a great high school baseball experience. I think I value that player more now than I ever have. I hopefully valued him to a certain degree my whole career, but I, I know for a fact, I value that player more now uh, than I did then that, you know, when high school baseball is done, he's going to get a job or maybe go off to college and, and never pick up a, a bat again. Uh, that kid deserves a great experience, whether he, you know, throws a no hitter or, or not. Um, he deserves a great experience. So I, I think there's real value in not everybody can be the starting pitcher. Um, I wasn't. And so I think there's real value in uh, having, a, you know, those relationships and being part of a team. Building building relationships is huge, and it's been uh, very similar to you. Like almost not not all, but certainly almost all of the people I value in my life I met through baseball. I, I, when I think to my where my life is right now, uh, so I'm married and I have a son. Without baseball, I wouldn't have gone to the college. You know, I wouldn't have chosen the college I went to because I wanted to keep playing. I certainly wasn't very good, but I wanted to keep playing. So I found a D three school that was willing to let me come and play. Uh, without that, I don't meet my wife without meeting her. You know, I don't obviously have a, have a kid right now. I don't have the career that I have. I probably don't get into this thing, coaching and everything. And so just on a personal level, I owe like everything that I have in life to this game, like to baseball. And there's, there's not any other way to look at it. Like, it's just the way it is. And so I think relationships are, like you said, just, they're so important and you get so much out of them by playing sports, not just baseball, whatever sport you want to play. I couldn't agree more. We put one question on our goal sheet uh, to your point here. What do you want out of this season if we don't win? And and I think that's an important answer for players to to reflect on. There's no guarantee that we're going to win because we have in the past. We don't we don't get to cash those wins in later on. Um, so what do you want out of this baseball season if we don't win? And the common answers are the things that you mentioned: the camaraderie, the relationships, the teamwork, the having fun with your friends. And I think that uh, we need to keep prioritizing those as coaches. 
Yeah, I had Sandro Prosperino on from uh, Valha High School. He's a soccer coach over in New York. Um, and then I also had a, a Eric Detman from Lincoln High School. He's the head track and field and cross country coach. And they both gave completely different answers on on winning and setting goals that are you know that are set around the idea of winning. Uh, Sandro's idea was more that you know you shouldn't set a goal around winning because then if you don't meet that goal, maybe you've you can kind of see it as a as a failure, the season as a failure. Eric Detman kind of tended to go the other way, saying that it's you know it's fine to set team goals around winning because it's about the journey and the things that come along the way. But what you said makes a ton of sense. I think kind of bridges the gap between the two of them, which is, okay, what if we don't win this year? What are your goals then? What do you want to get out of this year? And I think that's a way where you can kind of involve both the winning side of things. You know, yeah, we want to, you know, we want to win the league or we want to make the state tourney or, or even a state championship or whatever. But then, okay, separately from that, what do you want out of this year if we don't win? I think it's awesome. Thanks. I, I really don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. Yeah, I think you can accomplish both along the way. I think you showed us how to do that. I, I haven't, this one hasn't aired yet, but I had a conversation that'll air here in the next few weeks. Um, and a big part of it revolved around assistant coaches and how the, the kind of the big dirty secret around being a head coach is the importance of assistant coaches who make us look good, who make us look like we know what we're doing and who can kind of be selfless and give so much of their time often for little or no pay. How do you how do you personally with your program go about finding coaches, hiring coaches, and then when you have good ones, retaining them and keeping them around? I'm fortunate. Uh, I, have, I have a lot of good coaches of varying ages. I have a couple assistants on the varsity last year that have been with me for 10 years and yet some young guys that do our freshman, sophomore that just got done playing for me. And our, our pitching coach just got done playing for us here. He, he was only the second coach I've ever hired that um, – graduated from our program and instantly went to the varsity. Usually we have people that enter our, that graduate from our program, want to help out. Great. Uh, be our seventh grade, you know, get into the youth levels or the travel team or freshman and sophomore baseball, or eighth grade baseball, you know, something like that. Well, we put him right in the varsity. So we're, we have a great mix of veteran coaches and young enthusiastic coaches that are trying to learn too. I think that when I, when I think about assistant coaches, uh, I think spending the time to teach them your plan, uh, that, that's when I say your plan, I'm not talking about Casey Clunder's plan. I'm talking about Waverly Shower Rock Baseball's plan. That's all of our visions on what that looks like. But then being uh, 100% aligned in that vision is so important that just because you played for us two years ago doesn't mean you're going to coach exactly like it. So we need to make sure our alignment, that all the drills and terminology is being taught the exact same way. Now, I, I told you a little bit about Waverly Shellrock first, that we don't have a 50-year tradition or something like that. Here's the good of that, is that I, I don't fight a lot of people about the vision of our baseball program. I think, for the most part, the communities of Waverly and Shellrock have really supported me, and, and they know that we didn't win a ton uh, long, you know, long ago, that most of our success is recent. And so... Uh, if, if I implement, you know, like when driveline was coming out and you're on that coast out there, when driveline was coming out, we started doing it. And I think 2014, maybe uh, we were pretty, you know, and we're going to throw these big green balls against the wall. And, you know, our parents and youth coaches went, that Clunder kind of knows what he's doing. So that, that sounds good. Let's all do it. I mean, there was no, I mean, I read stuff about people were fighting that left and right. Uh, not too much at Waverly Shell Rock. I've been very fortunate that way. But when you think about assistant coaches and that type of development and alignment, I always think about the story, and I and I 
can't recall where I heard it um, or what publication it came from, but some reporter at the national championship football game, like was visiting both locker rooms after the game. And, uh, and it was Alabama had won, just won the national championship. So it could be any number of several years there, but uh, and in the, in the other locker room, the losing team, uh, this, this reporter had said, you know, how much longer do you guys need or, or what's going to, you know, until we can come in here. And he, and he was folding towels and he said, I'm just going to fold these towels and I'll be done in 10 minutes. And then they went over to Alabama's locker room and, and the managers for Alabama were doing the same thing. And he said, how long, how much longer do you guys need? You know, what, what do you got to finish up yet? And they were folding towels too, but he says, you know, we're preparing to win the national championship. And so even the people folding the towels in the locker room before the team was, you know, coming off in the fourth quarter, they had a mission to win the national championship game that everybody in Coach Saban's process uh, had a specific objective and it was all pulling in the same direction. Now, that's an extreme example, but I think we can replicate that, uh, especially if we're trying to be efficient with players' time. We know how busy they are. You know, can we uh, as coaches meet more often to align our teaching that the eighth graders are doing it the same way as the ninth graders and the tenth graders? Um, and so that that we the advantage we have over colleges is that we have um, you know, we don't have a bunch of different feeder programs. We have our feeder program, and so we we can align all of the teaching at every level. So I send out practice plans, uh, an outline for every level of youth youth baseball in Waverly and Shellrock, uh, with our U Triple S A stuff. I send out the here's the outline, and I think the first one I went a little overboard. Maybe I think I embedded 28 YouTube videos in there. It must have taken those coaches like four hours to watch it for an hour long youth practice uh, or an hour and a half youth practice. But uh, I'd rather be a little over the top than under. And and so I think you know working really hard for that alignment. I've said this over and over, and I really believe this. I don't think I know more about baseball than anybody else. In fact, I probably know a lot less with people asking me about, hey, what about this certain situation with the runner on second? Would you pull your left field there? I don't really think of baseball like that. And uh, I think about all the things that you and I have talked about uh, here tonight um, on this podcast that, that we can do to help players. Well, I think assistant coaches can have a giant role in that because they sometimes they get to coach more. You know, we're uh, – we're making sure we have enough concession stand workers and we're going to the radio to do interviews. And, you know, we're coaches, assistant coaches, a lot of times can be your direct communication to the players. And so I think they have a huge role, but they have to all be aligned on their vision. So we've kind of set parameters on them that, you know, you, your, your personal philosophies are going to be our philosophies that when you come in, Urban Meyer says, you know, when they come in, you run Ohio state's offense, that just because we have a new hitting coach, we're not going to change everything. Now, if you have a couple ideas for us, great. Let's hear them. Let's let's put them on the table. Let's throw them up on the whiteboard and see what they look like, or watch some film and see if you have, you know you have a couple of drills for us that are new. Great, uh, but we're not going to wholesale change because when you leave, I still want this program to keep going. Or even when I leave as the head coach, I would hope that Waverly Shawrock, if if the day comes where I'm no longer the coach, I want nothing but success for Waverly Shawrock. So. Uh, I would hope that the philosophies and stuff stay with the program. I try to do a similar thing. And the way I look at it is is kind of, I think, hitting on the same points you made, which is when I bring in a coach, or when we hire a coach, um, the number one priority is that I want them to share our vision, right? So making sure they understand, just like you were talking about, um, 100% aligned, you want them to, to go along with the, you know, the Waverly Shell Rock, or in my case, the South Salem High School Baseball Program's vision, right? Uh, and then you also mentioned the idea of, 
assistant coaches kind of get to coach more. And it is absolutely true for those who have not uh, had an opportunity to dive in as a head coach yet. Um, There are so many things involved in head coaching that you don't even know yet uh, until you take over as a head coach. And there's just so many little things you don't even think about. And then as a head coach, a lot of that stuff is what you spend most of your time thinking and worrying about. So basically the promise I try to make to our coaches when we hire coaches is I'm going to let you coach and I will try to take as many other things off your plate as I possibly can. I'll shield you from parents. I'll shield you from any outside influences. I just want you to work with kids and coach. In return for that, you're going to make sure that you're aligned with our vision. And we can have conversations about it, and the vision can certainly change based on conversations we have. But for the most part, you know, you're, you're coming in the program, and I want you to coach. I just want to give you the freedom to coach and the ability to coach without, without anybody bugging you. And in return for that, just stay with our vision, use our verbiage, use our terminology, uh, do the same drills we use, call them the same thing. Like you mentioned, I think that's a really big deal. Calling a drill by the same thing, no matter what level they're at. You know, I don't want a kid who's playing freshman baseball for us. And then maybe he makes a jump to varsity his sophomore year. I don't want him to get to our varsity team and then have to teach him what a drill is, right? He should already know the drill because he already did it and he already knows the name of it. And we shouldn't have to restart from that. And so I think the things you mentioned there, I love it because obviously bias it, it aligns with what i do but i think it's important and i it's i i'm glad i'm to kind of hear it from you <laughs> because it kind of reinforces what i've tended to do over the last couple of years since i started this i've started been reflecting more on when i started as a coach i mentioned i was 26 as a head coach and i've thought man i was so young i was so stupid i didn't know anything and then i now i get to remind myself well you know i wasn't 20 at least or, and maybe that's a good thing or, or a bad thing because now I'm like oh, i was 26 i should have been smarter by then uh But you mentioned one of the things that you've learned over the years is to be better about valuing all the players, even the ones, you know, and and their experience, I guess I should say, not them as human beings, but valuing their experience in your program, regardless of where they stand in your program or, you know, how often they'll play or anything like that or contribute. Uh, What other ways have you grown as a coach since, you know, 18 year old you or 20 year old you uh, took over at at the helm of the program? I think it's really easy as a young coach to be infatuated with all the new stuff that uh, we have so re- we have so much recency bias as coaches that we see something out there and, oh, wow, that's, uh, that's the next greatest thing. I think you really have to take that and put it into your program and see where it fits. It may be great, uh, but you got to figure out where that fits into your program. And, and so I think the, maybe one of the biggest ways I've grown in terms, of, in terms of baseball specifically is we are not an inch deep and a mile wide. The things we do, we try and be very, very good at. Uh, I think it's, you know, if I was a basketball coach, I don't think you can run Syracuse's 2-3 zone, Duke's man-to-man, and Texas's full-court prep. There's a reason they, all three schools, hang their hat on those three specific defenses because it takes that much time to get good at them. And so there's many, many times I watch the College World Series and somebody runs an awesome pick play. Now, the fan sees that as a very cool pick play, and it worked, a hidden ball trick or whatever. I see that as probably seven hours of practice. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, no kidding. And, and so like, and you may never even use it too. Exactly right. It may, the situation may never come up and odds are, even if you worked on it, you're still talking about 16, 17 year old kids. They might screw it up anyway. And, That's true. and so I, I think we're pretty intentional about how much we do or different things because you, you see things out there and, and, uh, there's so much good information. Do you play your third baseman three steps this way? Well, your third baseman's your pitcher, so now you're also teaching that to your next third baseman. And and I think there's a lot of things that we just we try and keep the main thing, the main thing. Uh, and 
And again, I, the training economy goes to 14% infield fly balls. Well, that's something we need to practice then. It's not something I practiced early in my career, but yet rundowns, not even a half a percent of our total outs last year were based on the rundown. So we have, you know, here's kind of the quick analogy. We have, let's say we have five rundowns a year. I don't think we do have that many, but let's say we have five. If we never, ever work on it, how many are we going to get out of those five? Well, we're still varsity athletes that, you know, can probably run, throw, and catch in some order. So maybe three. What if we worked on it every day? It's probably still not five because we're still dealing with high school players. So maybe it's four. So what's the minimum and what's the maximum? And then you got to figure out how much time you're willing to shift from the minimum to the maximum. Because people think the, max, the minimum zero. Well, it's probably not. I mean, you know, you've got a real high school shortstop out there and an athletic second baseman, and they can probably do a rundown and get somebody out three out of five, even if they've never worked on it all year. The minimum's not zero. The minimum's probably three. So how much time do you want to spend to get one more relay from or one more rundown from three out of five to four out of five? I'm right there with you, Casey. I think it's a trap that a lot of coaches fall for where we, like you mentioned, you see something on TV or you, you just, maybe it's the way that you've always done things or you've always seen them done as a player and you fall into that trap of just going along with it like you mentioned maybe it's the rundown things so you're practicing these rundowns all the time and I've seen and been a part of teams that spent you know far probably you know probably far too much time practicing things that don't happen in games what you know the idea of you know taking the game and backwards planning it you know so you kind of like teaching right <laughs> at its core you know exactly. what's the end goal what do you want the kids to get out of this so if it's you know, we're reading whatever, let's say you're reading Romeo and Juliet. And by the end of it, you want them to understand and be able to explain, you know, the difference between fate and free will and, you know, use quotes and evidence in order to do that. Okay, great. So then you backwards plan, right? And so everything you do in class is designed around them being able to do that end goal. And I think what you're saying here is so important for coaches to hear. And it's that your sport, your practices should be structured that same way. They should reflect what happens in the game. And if there's something that is so, so rare, like you just said, maybe there's only five rundowns in a game, in, you know, in a season that result in outs or don't, uh, you know, we could, we could spend so much time of these kids' time doing that. And like you mentioned, it's important to be efficient with your player's time. And for a play that might happen just a few times over the course of the year, if that, like that's, it's a waste of everybody's time. And you could use that time on things where you're going to get kids better on, on, you know, the, you know, 14% of infield fly balls, for example, we can spend that time on that instead. And all of a sudden we're getting our kids better and then things go, go well for us in the game, even on teams like yours that might not have, you know, the D one athletes or guys, you know, chucking at 94 up there and you can consistently win games in whatever sport you're playing just by backwards planning from the game. That's a great way to put it backwards plan. I really like that. Basically, you're just teaching. You're being a teacher of baseball. Like it makes total sense. <laughs> it really does. Sure. Um, I wanted to. I wanted to finish. Um, I, I just had really one last thing that I wanted to make sure we got to, which was um, balancing time between family and coaching. And it's something that I've I've tended to stop and, and ask at the end of each of these podcasts because I think it's really important as coaches that we're we're honoring everybody's time. You know, our players deserve all of us. Our family deserves all of us but they, they can't get all of us all the time. Right. And so it's a big question, but I think it's really important to, to get people's thoughts on this. Um, you mentioned your, your wife and you, you, you got married on a base or you, you proposed on the field. I, did. I, pro I proposed yeah. on a field before a game and we took our wedding pictures uh, right after our wedding on the field. 
I assume she kind of knew what she was getting into when she married you. One of the biggest benefits Uh, I have, Coach Price, is that (laughs) I I was, you know, since I took over the job at 20, I had been coaching many, many years before I met her. So uh, she knew what she was signing up for, which I think is, uh, uh, you know, bless her heart that she still signed up for it. Uh, But it, it was a benefit, certainly. Yeah, exactly. So how do you balance family and coaching? How do you, how, you know, what do you, what do you do to make sure that you're giving everything you've got to both? I don't have a great overarching philosophy on this one. I've listened to your podcast and others are going to be far better at this one than I am, but maybe a couple small tips. I, I, I cut off uh, a lot of stuff that doesn't matter. I try and cut, you know, cause the things we do, I want to be very good at. Uh, just like a player, just like we talked about with training economy and practice. You know, Urban Meyer says, do your goals match your habits? If not, you got to change your goals or change your habits. And and so uh, the things that I really value, obviously family time, baseball being two of the biggest, let's make sure we're pouring a lot into those. I think there's a uh, almost a perception that well-rounded means eight things. You know, do you also, besides baseball and coaching, do you also – uh, referee basketball and do you, you know, three or four other things. I don't because I really value uh, the baseball side and my family side. So I don't want to cut out my family, as you've mentioned on, on this show. And I, and I really want to dedicate a lot of time to the kids and the, the baseball program at every level from T-ball all the way up to varsity baseball. And so if I'm going to do both of those things really well, I don't have time for a lot of other things. So maybe I'm not even the right person to ask about this. The, the story I told on the radio that was, uh, during the pandemic, when they had me on to project the season here, um, you know, I had one of my friends call me over, over the quarantine and say, you got to watch this Tiger show. Uh, and everybody was watching, right? And I, me, I don't know anything. So I said, what channel is it on? <laughs> well, they want a channel. It's on, you know, this Netflix app. Well, you got to, do I have that? Well, you got to order it. Well, I don't know anything about that. So uh, I, I just, the things I try and do, I try and I try and, and do very well. I got to be honest, though, you need to go get Netflix and use it. Give up this 10 hours of your life watching Tiger King at some point. I got to tell you, I ended up doing it. I got a password and uh, I ended up watching that show. I don't really watch TV very often, but uh, that was certainly a guilty pleasure for all of us over the quarantine. (laughs) I think it was the quarantine's greatest gift to us just to bring the whole world together over the Tiger King. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. But yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Make things easier by getting rid of things that don't matter. Maybe not letting things that don't really matter creep into you. I think that makes a lot of sense. I, we, I tried to study like efficiency from people in corporate America. There's a lot of great articles and books and things like that on efficiency. And so, you know, I, I know that I don't, if I can help it, I really don't want to start working on baseball or having meetings until my son goes to bed. And so therefore I'm probably, you know, cutting my time down. So I have to get the same amount or more done in a certain amount of time that maybe other people have more time. And so what does that mean? Well, I got to cut out some things. Like I mentioned, I, I, I don't watch a lot of TV or things like that, but can I be really efficient with the two hours I have between the time I'd like to go to bed and between the time my son goes to bed? And so we try and be really efficient with those things. I love it. Well, it goes back to being efficient with your players' time. You're also being efficient with your own time, and it's helping both your players and your family and yourself too. I love it. Uh, I wanted to finish just by giving you a chance if there's anything. I mean, we've covered a lot, and this has been an awesome conversation that I think a lot of people of all sports are going to kind of really benefit from. But I wanted to give you a chance here as we close out. If there's any parting thoughts that you might have for for young coaches or for any coaches or uh, 
family people or, you know, Tiger King fans, whatever it is, any parting thoughts that maybe we didn't get to today that, that you feel strongly about that might, you know, benefit other people. You bet coach. I, the biggest one for me is I, I have such a passion for helping young coaches and, and there's no question it's because I was a young coach. Uh, you know, I took the head job at 20 and I certainly wasn't prepared for it. And if I could go back and apologize to all those kids, I probably would and have some of them. Um, but so I, I, I have real passion for that. So I try in our area to reach out to new coaches. So you don't have to be young to be a new coach. I keep saying young coach, but some people take their first job when their son's up there at a smaller school. They, you know, they've coached them through Little League. Nobody else to take the job and they, they hop in by the goodness of their heart and they go do it. So um, I can never repay the people that helped me. Uh, when, when I got my undeserved opportunity. So I want to make sure I, I pay that forward as, as much as possible. And so a couple tips I would have for that is never stop learning and growing. We talked about making it your own, but never stop learning and growing. Um, because, you know, a couple examples I always use, my wife and I will probably watch a movie with our son this week. We'll let him pick. So it'll probably be Bob the Builder or something like that. But uh, my wife and I will probably watch something with our son this week, but we certainly won't go to Blockbuster this week and rent it. Uh, and th- th- what a segue here for me not having Netflix right into uh, you know, I, I got I got a whole bunch of static the other day because I mentioned to my team that that I was going to tape the Iowa game because we had camp during Iowa football and they say you don't really tape anything anymore I, I don't know that so uh, you record it but uh, same way with Skype here we are during a global pandemic where you know we all all we do is talk on computers now Skype had a 17 year head start on. Uh, and, and, but we don't Skype, we, we zoom. And so, uh, Skype was almost a verb like Google it, uh, or it was synonymous with video the way Kleenex is with tissues. And so zoom made a couple of changes and now we all zoom or we Google meet and, and Skype certainly had a 17 year head start. So I think you never stop learning and growing. And when you stop learning and growing, that's when, you know, if you want to think about it just as winning, that's when other people catch you. Uh, I, in all this great information that's out there, I went to a coach's clinic last night and listened to Kai Correa talk, one of the best coaches in the country right now, and had an opportunity to actually hang out with him a little bit afterwards and learn even more. Um, one of the best coaches in the country, people are still our greatest resource that Twitter is not necessarily a resource or YouTube's not necessarily a resource. It is the people that put out that content. People are still our greatest resource. And that, you know, can you Zoom call with people? You mentioned uh, on this podcast already, Coach uh, Burkhart and Coach Barta. I Zoom with them all the time. I had a young pitching coach, can be his first year calling pitches potentially. And, and uh, you know, we Zoomed with some other staffs about what they use to call pitches. I mean, people are very willing, maybe it's unique to the baseball community, but coaches are very willing like yourself to put out great content and, and you can learn from that, but you can also do a one-on-one with them all over the country. I mean, there was during the pandemic, that was my favorite part of it. I told our young coaches, I said, take advantage of this. It may never happen again, that these coaches, we zoomed with professional coaches, major league coaches, division one, you know, major college coaches, uh, an opportunity that we would never have and probably will never have again. But but uh, people seem to be willing to to share things to help coaches. And so just those exchange of ideas are a great way. And now we've learned how to Zoom. And so that's been really good for our program. We do it almost weekly with another staff. You hear about football coaches doing that all the time. They went and visited the coaches at a different school and they exchanged ideas. Um, and then the key to that, the secret sauce to that is to make it your own. So you avoid that recency bias of the last thing you heard was ne- wasn't necessarily the best thing you've heard. 
And so your handbooks, your philosophy, whatever that is, I would document all that so that you can just take something new and add it, see where it fits into your program. I wouldn't try and I'm certainly not smart enough to do this, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't just keep everything in your brain. I would put it all down so that still to this day, when I create a practice plan, I still look at the handbooks that we have for hitting, pitching and all the drills to make sure I didn't miss anything that, you know what, for this kid having this specific hitting flaw right now, let's go into our drill archive and find maybe the perfect drill for him and not just, you know what, last week I did it with this player and it kind of helped. Maybe there's a little bit better drill that I can find. So I still, to this day, even though I've created them, I still look at them before each and every practice to get in there and, and make the best practice plan possible. So new new info is great, but make sure you add it to your program. And then I would just end Coach Price by just saying thank you so much for having me on. I've enjoyed the other episodes of the podcast. You have an awesome thing going with the people you've had on. And, and thank you for letting me share a little bit about our story at Waverly Shell Rock and some of our experiences. So thank you very much. Casey, okay, so you've, you, you've shared so much stuff here that's going to help so many people. I do want to mention before we finish off, I love the analogy of Zoom and Skype. I think that's money. I've actually mentioned that before to a couple people just in passing. Like, isn't it amazing that Skype, like I no one knew what Zoom was. And then March comes around. And at this point, if you haven't used Zoom in America by now, like I just, there's, you must be retired and enjoying the life on a beach or something. It's almost it's like incredible. Netflix. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then the, you know, the idea of of, of Blockbuster, uh, we have here in Oregon, fun fact, about two hours uh, east of where I am right now in Bend, Oregon, the last Blockbuster in the country, in the world. There's still one Blockbuster running. Well, make and sure it's, you get uh, over and support them and rent a movie once in a while with your wife. They're crushing it right now. They sell their shirts and all this stuff, and people go and visit them and take pictures and just have a blast. Uh, anyway, Casey, it's been awesome having you on. Like I said, you have shared so many things. I'll have to text you a picture of my notes because they're just a jumbled mess. But I, there's a lot I took from this that I'm going to obviously implement and, and get after it with. But uh, just a reminder of making sure that we're taking care of kids and being efficient with their time. And then, like I said, I think the biggest thing for me was just getting kids off autopilot. And I think part of that through this conversation is making sure that I'm not on autopilot either. And so Casey, I appreciate you coming on. It was a blast. Uh, thanks for giving up uh, your time. I know it's much later over there where you are than where I am right now. And just, I loved it. Loved the conversation every second of it. I've learned a lot from your podcast, so it's an honor to be on. Thanks so much, Coach Price. Hey everybody. Thanks for tuning in. As always, you can find the high school coaches club by going to our website, www.highschoolcoachesclub.com in addition to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HS Coaches Club. Coaches, trainers, administrators, uh, even players uh, can all provide us with stories that, that help us improve ourselves and the lives of our athletes too. So uh, here's the deal, everyone. Um, if you know somebody who'd make for an awesome guest here on the podcast, even if that somebody is you, uh, please email me at highschoolcoachesclub at gmail.com. Um, coaches, trainers, administrators, players of seriously any sport uh, at the high school level. Uh, if you've got something or you know somebody who's got something to offer up to the rest of us, um, please reach out to me. That's the best way to kind of help this community grow. Um, lastly, you can always reach out to me personally, and this is really the fastest way to get a response because I spend probably far too much time there. Um, on Twitter, uh, my handle is at Mr. Max Price. Uh, so, hey, I appreciate you being a part of the High School Coaches Club. Uh, honored that you tuned in and, and spent some of your time here with us. Uh, so thank you for that. And as Coach Lee would say, loving you. <laughs>